Welcome to this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara, where telling the truth in a time of universal deceit is a revolutionary act. Coming up in this episode, I have author and former Obama speechwriter David Litt. He's uh, written one New York Times bestselling book already, and he has a new book out called Democracy in One Book or Less, How It Works, Why It Doesn't, Why Fixing It is Easier Than You Think. And he is left of center, and we don't agree on everything, but he has some interesting takes on how we fix this mess that we're in. So stay tuned for my interview with him. It's coming up. Well, 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 we had a couple of things happen since our last episode, including 4th of July. And um, I hope everybody had a nice 4th of July. It was a little muted this year because of COVID and all the craziness that's going on. But I have to say that 4th of July has always been something that's really been a big tradition in my family because my grandfather was a police officer and a fireman in my hometown. And the... Fourth of July parade was a big deal, huge deal in my hometown. And so my grandfather marched in every parade from 1947 to 2016. And that's the year that he passed away. He um, he passed away uh, only a few days, about a week and a half after the last Fourth of July parade. And he couldn't really walk at that point. So they wheeled him, the police department wheeled him along the parade route. It was a really special moment. And um, I talked about it on CNN recently because I just felt that it was important for people to see that, you know, we're not going to let Donald Trump and his ilk ruin Independence Day. Now, there's a lot of discussions around the 4th of July and, you know, everyone wasn't free then and all that's true and the country was imperfect um, but we're still the greatest democracy in the world for now and we should celebrate that my grandfather was a world war ii veteran he was a police officer for almost 40 years retired captain and a volunteer fireman for 71 years so i just think that he his generation and and what my family stood for you know that's it's a good old America and I'm proud of that and I'm not going to I'm not going to shy away from it which is why it just upsets me so much when I see people like Donald Trump and his lunatics out there just co-opting what it means to be a patriot and you know what America stands for and just whitewashing the original sins of of our country which we have to acknowledge these, these things are true but at the same time trying to paint people that have a different point of view or a different experience here as being evil and as being um, some kind of, you know, leftist fascist, which doesn't exist, by the way, um, you know, threat to our country. I mean, listen, there are extremes on both sides for sure. But the, the kind of campaign that Donald Trump is about to run, we're seeing a preview of it. We saw a preview of it over Fourth of July weekend with Donald Trump's despicable speeches at Mount Rushmore and then at the White House. That That is a preview of what this guy's going to do from this point forward in the election. Be prepared, folks. He is going to focus on dividing this country, turning it into some kind of like we're in this us versus them borderline like civil war type invective i listened to those speeches and i was horrified horrified by what i heard 
Do I agree with the rioters and people who are vigilantes pulling down statues and, and lighting stores on fire? Absolutely not. Are those the majority of the people out there protesting? No. But those people have given a lifeline to the Trump campaign and his people at a time when his campaign was flailing because of his botched response to coronavirus and tens of thousands of Americans are dying. They've given him a lifeline now to point to this as, oh, look, look at those people on the left. You better be careful because that's what the country is going to descend into. When we all know that that's just a fringe element and that's just not true, but it doesn't matter. That's, those are the images that this campaign is going to focus on and they're going to use to try to scare suburban white women into staying with Donald Trump and voting for him again. We cannot let that happen. So don't fall for the okie doke people. Do not get caught up in that. I mean, if you turn on Fox News or, I mean, OANN, God forbid, or some of these other channels that, that Trump, that are Trump centric, it, I don't know what America they're looking at. It's really scary. Imagine if that's the, what you consume constantly. These people are out of their freaking minds. They really are. And it's, um, this is what we have to prepare for, which is why those of us like in the Lincoln Project, as many of you know, I'm a senior advisor for them. We're putting out ads left and right, calling Trump out, calling out these senators and people who are enabling him, holding them accountable. Too bad if the Republican establishment is uncomfortable by that. They think that we're the apostates, which I think is hilarious. We're not the ones who've betrayed our conservative or Republican principles. They are. And we're the mirror that they do not want to look into. We're that mirror. So too freaking bad. We are here to stay and we are dedicated to doing everything we can to not only get Donald Trump out of office, but to root out the weeds and branches that have given him life, this, these, these cancers that have enabled him to be this lawless president. So too bad if you guys don't like it. You shouldn't have sold your souls. Yes, we're coming for you. Martha McSally, Rubio, Gardner, M Mitch McConnell, Susan Collins, Tom Cotton. The list is long. The list is long. You know who you are. Now, I brought up the 4th of July holiday because a lot of people travel at that, you know, during that weekend. And this year, we didn't, but we traveled the week before. We went down the shore in Jersey, which if you listen to me, you know I talk about Jersey all the time and how down the shore is one of my favorite places in the whole world. It's my happy place. And while down the shore, um, we go to Seaside Park, which is near Seaside Heights. And we had a house there for the week. And I noticed that almost no one was wearing a mask when they were outside dining or on the boardwalk. And there was no social distancing. It was awful. It was really infuriating. We never ate out. We never went to the boardwalk. We actually went to the boardwalk once really quickly to get Coors ice cream, well, Coors custard, and walked right back off. And of course, we have our masks and all our protective stuff. That's it. And it was infuriating to see all of these people acting as though the coronavirus just magically went away, like there's no threat anymore. There's still a threat. People are still getting sick. We are setting daily records in this country for coronavirus cases. 50 and 60,000 cases per day. This is worse than when we initially locked down back in March and April. It's, it's mind boggling. 
And what was even more frustrating was infuriating, really. And I and I videotaped this and I posted it on my Twitter feed. For those of you who follow me on Twitter, at Tara Setmayer, I posted it. There was a restaurant down there, packed, packed out, no masks outside. They had a bar too, packed out, no social distancing. And guess what? There was a Trump MAGA sign proudly posted in the parking lot of this restaurant. How has this turned into a political issue? These dumbasses are proudly walking around, not protecting themselves or the people around them by not wearing a mask to what, for as a political statement? The absurdity of this is just beyond me, but it's the state of affairs, thanks to Donald Trump. This is what he's created. And now you have the, you have the United States leading the world in cases and in deaths and other countries refusing to allow American citizens into their countries, I don't blame them. I don't blame them. We are the laughing stock of the world. When Trump runs around talking about America first, I don't think he meant this, right? America first in deaths, America first in coronavirus cases, America first in selling out human rights, America first in abandoning our allies, withdrawing from the WHO, cozying up to Russia. I mean, it's just so infuriating. It really is. So please don't be like those people. Wear a mask. It's it, there, there is absolutely no rational, logical reason not to wear a mask at this point other than you trying to make a dumbass political statement. And it's a stupid one because you're willing to put yourself and others at risk to do it. Do you know what Trump even said during an interview? Because now, you know, Pence and others, because it's getting so bad, they can't deny it. They said, oh, well, now we should wear masks. And Pence, that jerk, is, you know, starting to wear a mask now. And Trump, during an interview, actually said, well, yeah, I've worn a mask and it kind of looks good on me. I look like the Lone Ranger. What? Sick. This guy is so sick. It's it's hard to imagine that this guy's president of the United States. It's so frustrating and dangerous. But yeah, he actually said that. If you don't believe me, Google it. And not only that, when I talk about how sick he is, like his mentality with all of this, he does not give a damn about the health of this country, about American citizens. He doesn't care. He only cares about himself and his own reelection. That's it. He doesn't care. It's obvious. And that is a quintessential trait of a malignant narcissist that my friend George Conway talks about all the time. And not only him, medical professionals, Health, mental health professionals talk about this all the time, including Donald Trump's own niece, Mary Trump. Yes, she has a PhD. She is a psychotherapist or a psycho, yeah, I think a psychotherapist. And she's written this book that the Trump folks are trying to stop. They try to sue to get the publisher not to publish it. Of course, that was thrown out because it's First Amendment. You're not going to be able to stop that. I, the jury is still out about whether the NDA that she signed um, that she's in violation of that and whether there's any recourse there. Because back when her father, her father was Fred Trump, Donald Trump's oldest brother. He's the one that died from alcohol-related complications. I think he had a heart attack at 42. And um, he was Fred Trump Sr.'s namesake. And he did not want to carry on with the family business. He tried and was like, this is not for me. He said, screw that. I don't want anything to do with this Trump organization. 
I'm going to learn to be a pilot. And he did. He became a pilot and he flew for TWA before he died at 42. His daughter um, sued because of the grandfather's will. There was a whole big thing about this. And you can look this up, um, the details of that. But she decided to uh, write this book and basically tell all about what a sicko, crazy lunatic, incompetent fool Donald Trump is. It's the first family member to ever do this. So it's pretty explosive. And you best believe that I'm buying her book. John Bolton can go to hell, but Mary Trump, I'm buying your book. I might, it's on pre-order already at Amazon. It was supposed to come out in August, but they pushed the publication date up and it's coming out July 14th. So go out and get it folks. <laughs> Good for her for speaking up. But she talks about how Trump is mentally unstable and always has been. She also talks about how he cheated to get into some excerpts of leaked, how he cheated to get into University of Pennsylvania. He paid someone to take the SATs. Huh. I believe it. He's cheated at everything in life. He cheated on his taxes. He's cheated in business. He's cheated on all of his wives. Why wouldn't he cheat to get into college? Of course. <laughs> so I can't wait to, to, to read that. I'm going to read that with interest. But the part that upsets me the most, well, a lot of it does, but, you know, he, um, the idea that Donald Trump loves the military and he's so pro-military is a bunch of bullshit and we all know it. Because whenever it comes time to stand up for the military, when the military pushes back on the unconstitutional, unethical things he does, then he goes after them. Remember, he's gone after generals, General Mattis, John Kelly, others. He went after John McCain. We should have known then during the election in 2016 when he went after John McCain, calling him not a hero. <laughs> and this guy is a draft dodger a silver spooned draft dodger that claimed he had bone spurs. Oh yeah, he cheated on that too. They paid some doc, some quack doctor to write a note saying he had bone spurs. What a bunch of bullshit. And not only that, he bragged about how he didn't serve in Vietnam and that not getting a venereal disease at the, during the 70s was his personal quote, Vietnam. Yes, he actually said that. He's such a disgrace. This guy's our commander in chief. But he goes after military, honorable military men, honorable military men and women who've served this country. And he went and, and he's lived a life of utter disgust other than being a narcissistic billionaire off the backs of other people and his own father's money. He goes after McCain, Gold Star families. Remember Lieutenant Colonel Vinman? He went after him for standing up and testifying during the Ukraine impeachment hearings. <laughs> I'm going to get to Colonel Vinman in a second. But the story came out over the last week that the Russians were paying bounties to the Taliban to kill American soldiers in Afghanistan. And the president of the United States was briefed on it and didn't do anything about it. The administration denies that they, that president Trump was directly briefed but it was in his presidential daily briefing, according to the intelligence sources who said, yeah, we put it in the briefing. It's not our fault he didn't read it. It's not our fault the president doesn't read. But he's done nothing about it. And instead of, when this leaked to the New York Times, instead of being upset that Russia was paying the Taliban, <laughs> possibly, they, they're saying that it wasn't confirmed or that the intelligence, they're disputing whether the intelligence was exact or not 
But there are enough people because more and more stories came out after this, because, of course, the intelligence community was pissed off that they that the president's reaction wasn't, holy shit, why is Russia doing this? We're going to make Russia pay. We're going to sanction them or take some kind of action. No, it was who's the leaker. This is a hoax. This is fake news. No criticism whatsoever of what Russia's doing. Surprise, surprise. So more people came out and more stories came out and more detail came out. How did they find out this was going on? Well, during a special operations raid of a Taliban outpost, our guys found a large sum of money in a stash house and it raised some eyebrows. Now, people I know in the intelligence community and when, you know, I worked in Capitol Hill, my old boss was an Afghanistan expert and sat on the Foreign Affairs Committee. So I know a little bit more about the dynamics of Afghanistan than most average people. And it is not abnormal for enemies of ours to try to be disruptors and fuel the insurgencies. The Iranians did it in Iraq, and that's why we had the surge, and you know, there was a lot going on. That's why we say that there's a lot of American blood on Iran, Iran, Iran's hands because they were fueling the insurgency in Iraq that was killing our soldiers. Well, now you got the Russians doing it in Afghanistan, and the Russians have always had uh, an interest in Afghanistan, even after they got run out during their war and they lost in the 80s, they still have a little bit of a network there. They want a hold in that region. They've got it now in Syria. So it's not abnormal for our enemies to engage in that kind of stuff. But the idea that they were paying specific bounties to kill Amer- American soldiers, that's the part that's most unnerving about this. Now, some generals said, listen, It wasn't exactly, we didn't exactly prove it, but there was enough information there for me to be concerned about it. That's all I need to know. And in the past, we've had bipartisan efforts to sanction Russia for their bad behavior in the world. But this administration, starting in 2017, has not fully deployed those sanctions against Russia. Surprise, surprise again. Why not? Why not? Like, (laughs) if... It's unreal. And here we are again. And this is in this is they literally have blood on their hands. And this president says and does nothing. He's worrying about who leaked it. Get the hell out of here. That's just a red herring. So, the, of course, the, the Lincoln Project, we put out a rapid response ad called Whispers, where everyone's whispering about, you know, Trump and this and that. And he's like, oh, you're so paranoid. You think people are talking about you? Guess what? Everybody's talking about you because you're incompetent. <laughs> if you want to get the Lincoln Project ads when they come out, you can go and subscribe to the YouTube channel, the Lincoln Project, or you can sign up and get the, get the emails at lincolnproject.us because we've been churning them out. Or if you're on Twitter, Project Lincoln, we've been churning them out left and right. Rapid fire. It's great. But that story just upsets me because recently, you know, this time of year is when the appropriations bills for all the cabinet offices are are passed. So the the Department of Defense, DHS, DOJ, all of these uh, agencies in the government have to get a budget passed every year through Congress. So there was an effort by Senator Menendez from New Jersey to add sanctions into the next defense appropriations bill to sanction Moscow for this. And Republicans, Republicans blocked it. Nope. We're not going to sanction Russia. Why? It's so frustrating. This is just a blatant betrayal. 
Not only is this guy incompetent, dishonest, he's traitorous. He really is. Just traitorous. And his minions and sycophants in the media on Fox News are just as traitorous and despicable. And I'm talking about Tucker Carlson today, this time. Some of you may or may not have heard that Tucker Carlson went after Senator Tammy Duckworth this week over the fact that she gave an interview on CNN and was asked about the the left talking about taking down statues of George Washington and Jefferson, et cetera, the controversy over that. Now, she answered that question by saying, instead of denouncing it outright, saying like, well, that's a bridge, bridge too far, she said, we should have a national dialogue about that and proceeded to talk about the importance of examining these issues and talking about it. Now, I personally don't believe that we should be taking down statues of George Washington and things like that, but we can talk about the flaws of our founding fathers. They all had them. They were slave owners and they were brilliant men also. They aren't mutually exclusive and that's okay. But to question her patriotism, he called her a coward. He said that she hates America, that she's dumb. Let me tell you, Tammy Duckworth, I may not agree with her politics, but you best believe that she is a a patriot. She's a hero. She lost both her legs in combat when her helicopter that she was co-piloting was shot down in Iraq in 2004. Yes, lost both her legs. And Tucker Carlson has the audacity to question her patriotism and love of country? He's a freaking trust fund kid who never had to work a day in his life. He's Tucker Swanson Carlson. That's right, Swanson, like the food company, Fish Swanson. Yeah, he's the heir to that. And he's got the audacity because because of a different viewpoint that she has on something that he does to say that she hates America and question her patriotism. These people are a disgrace. Absolute disgrace. Shame on him. And it's the same thing. It's like what Trump does when he goes after the generals and things like that. People who have served this country honorably when he is a silver spoon draft dodger himself. So I want to play an ad. I'm going to play for you by an organization called Vote Vets, uh, votevets.org. They're also on Twitter. And they put out an eviscerating ad about this that I just want to play. If you want to see it, you can obviously Google it, but just listen to this ad. It's great. The guy who claimed bone spurs to get out of serving our country when he was called, who claimed STDs were his, quote, own personal Vietnam, and cowered in a bunker when protesters shouted his name. Donald Trump is so frightened of facing war hero Tammy Duckworth as Joe Biden's running mate. Helicopter pilot lost both legs when her National Guard unit was shot down over Baghdad. He sicked Tucker Carlson on a suicide mission to take her down. You're not supposed to criticize Tammy Duckworth in any way because she once served in the military. Most people just ignore her. But when Duckworth does speak in public, you're reminded what a deeply silly and unimpressive person she is. What a coward. Tammy Duckworth is also a fraud. Huh. Tammy Duckworth, the combat pilot who took it to America's enemies and earned a purple heart. Tammy Duckworth, who doesn't take BS from anyone. I always wanted to get the purple heart. 
And I have a message for Cadet Bone Spurs. And I will not be lectured by a five deferment draft dodger. Tammy is tough as hell. You boys took on the wrong war hero. Ha! Good for them. Now, she is under consideration as one of the women being vetted for uh, vice president, potentially, for Joe Biden. Um, probably a long shot, but that's why that ad, they put that in there about Trump's so afraid of her possibly being Trump's um, Biden's running mate. But good for them. You know, you got... You, I, she lost her legs. <laughs> I mean, come on. Which leads me to Colonel Vinman. Speaking of Purple Heart recipients and heroes that were retaliated against, remember Alex Vinman? He was the lieutenant colonel who worked in the NSC in, uh, on the Ukraine desk and testified during the impeachment hearing about Trump's misdeeds concerning Ukraine. And Vinman basically told the story that, yeah, Trump was threatening to hold up our military aid unless Ukraine investigated Joe Biden, which is not right. And he should have been impeached for it. Well, it took a lot of courage for Vinman to testify because he knew that he would probably get retaliated against. And he did. Now, Trump obviously was furious while this was happening. He was Twitter attacking him as he was testifying. And if you if you didn't see Vinman's opening statement, him and Marie Ivanovich and um, who was the other one, the other, the other diplomat, Fiona Hill, their statements were so powerful. But Vinman's statement was one that really, really stuck with me because his family escaped the Soviet Union when he was a child, him and his twin brother and his family. And they came to the United States and made something of themselves. And both him and his twin brother served in the military and both of them worked in the White House. Distinguished careers. Vinman got a Purple Heart also after he um, survived an RPG attack. And Donald Trump did nothing but go after him. And people, Trump supporters, started questioning whether Vinman was a traitor and that he was, you know, that he wasn't really an American and just really vile, awful attacks against him. And it just really pissed me off at the time. I was so furious about it. And they didn't fire him right away or reprimand him or retaliate against him right away because that would have been too obvious. No, they waited until after the impeachment was over, not long after, and they ended up, quote, reassigning Vindman out of the White House to some, like, you know, utility closet in the Pentagon, to some low-level job in the Pentagon. So he was essentially fired. And not only that, he was escorted out of the White House in the most humiliating fashion. You have got to be kidding me. So Vindman since then has talked about the retaliation and just how miserable it's been for him because of him making this, the decision to do the right thing, to do the brave and courageous thing to stand up to Donald Trump. Well, he was up for a promotion. He was a lieutenant colonel and he's up for full colonel for a promotion. Well, he made the announcement this week that he's decided to retire. He's going to end his army career rather than continue to go through 
the bullshit that he's had to go through, had to suffer through him and his family. At one point during the impeachment hearing, they had to put him and his family in protective custody. Imagine that. Outrageous. This is outrageous. And I really, really hope that the Biden campaign and Democrats use this and turn it around and turn this stuff around on Trump. He is no friend of the military. He uses them as political pawns and props to, to puff up his own sick fantasy of being a dictator. Okay. He has no sense of honor, no sense of duty, none whatsoever. And this is another example of that. Well, God bless Alexander Vindman and I wish him the best. And it's a damn shame that he's not going to get that promotion to Colonel that he deserves because of this bastard, this traitorous bastard, Donald Trump, who we have got to get out of the White House. And something that Colonel Vindman said that will stick with me forever during his testimony. He talked about how his dad was worried about him coming forward and doing the right thing because of exactly what ended up happening to him. But he said that he assured his dad that this was still the United States. And he said, Dad, because here, right matters. I hope so. I hope so. And it's now time to bring in this week's guest, my conversation with author David Litt. I am thrilled to have um, my my next guest here on Honestly Speaking with Tara. He wrote a great book. It's a really fun read. Um, he's a former speechwriter for President Obama, a New York Times bestselling author, and his latest book is called Democracy in One Book or Less, How It Works, Why It Doesn't, Why Fixing It is Easier Than You Think. Welcome, David Litt, to Honestly Speaking with Tara. Thank you for having me. So before we get into the meat and potatoes of your book... I noticed that you are from, you have family that is from Jersey, you're from New York City, and I really appreciated the way in which you told stories and the wit and humor that you weave throughout your book, because coming from that part of the world, you know, we have a certain, we just have a certain uh, wit about us. So uh, I just wanted to say I appreciated that. What part of Jersey is your grandfather, your grandparents from? So my grandparents grew up in New York City, but they moved to Tenafly and then Englewood so up in North Jersey. And then I'm also married to a Jersey girl. So my wife is from the shore. She's from Oakhurst and we got married in Asbury Park. Amazing. I am from Bergen County. I grew up in Paramus. I talk about my very proud Jersey girl status all the time. And my <laughs> husband is from Brooklyn. And I joke that God knew what he was doing by bringing me someone from New York or New Jersey because no nobody else could handle me. Jersey girls are special. So you right there, we get along. You're a smart man. You married a Jersey girl. And the shore is one of my favorite places in the whole world. It's my happy place. We just spent a week down the shore before the 4th of July to rejuvenate and kind of get away from all the craziness. So shout out to your wife, the proud Jersey girl too as well, I'm sure, and your grandparents. I love it. Jersey people seem to find each other. It's great. <laughs> That's totally, totally true. Anywhere you go, there's like a couple of people being like, what exit? And you're like, okay, there they are. Right, right. And then of course, you know, we're like, what exit? Enough with it. We know what exit. But then, you know, I actually on Twitter, um, one of my friends, McKay Coppins, uh, he, his daughter... <laughs> 
Uh, I guess they have they have family in New England and they drive through Jersey all the time to get there from the D.C. area. And um, he said that there was a smell from fireworks out outside in their neighborhood. And she's like, Dad, it smells like Jersey. I was like, no, Jersey is so much more than just the turnpike. <laughs> I was yes. like, please take your daughter down the shore. <laughs> Agreed. And I said, well, I grew up in Manhattan, so I didn't know any of this. Uh, you know, I would I would visit my grandparents across the bridge, but that was as far as I got. Right. And then uh, and then when I met my now wife, you know, I got I got fully into Jersey lore in a whole new way. Indeed. So is my husband. He understands jug handles. He understands mm-hmm. the pork roll versus Taylor ham. And there's yes. no such thing as central Jersey. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- OK, now see now now this is where we're going to disagree, because my wife will tell you that she comes from central Jersey. Of it's course. like the tiny a little sliver mm-hmm. uh but that's uh you know it, there's there's like six people and she's one of them right and it's an ongoing jersey centric battle when the governor, yes. when phil murphy acknowledged there was a central jersey that was enough to get him not reelected the second time around <laughs> <laughs> yeah he's uh he's right it's back-footed now right that's right anyway um So shout out to all my Jersey folks and the ongoing battles regionally. Uh, So let's talk about something a little less exciting than Jersey, depending on how you feel about it. But an important issue nonetheless. Uh, Recently, the Supreme Court uh, issued a decision on the Electoral College and what's called faithless electors. And this is an area that you are very passionate about. You've written about um, you've written about it. You wrote a piece in Time magazine about the, the, the decision in your book, you talk about the Electoral College and you you feel as though it should be scrapped and we should have a new system. Um, explain the significance of the Supreme Court case and why people should care. Faithless electors, it's a polite term for um, you know the, the way that we do our presidential elections, which is you have your popular vote that takes place in 50 states plus DC, and then you have the electoral college vote that happens later. Faithless electors are people who say, well, my state voted one way and I'm supposed to vote that way, but I'm not going to do it. I'm going to vote a different way. And what the Supreme Court ruled in a unanimous 9-0 decision is that states can bind their electors to supporting the winner of the popular vote. In other words, they can say, it doesn't matter what you want to do. Whoever wins the statewide vote, you have to vote for them in the Electoral College. And to me, that's just another reminder of how useless and pointless the Electoral College is. I mean, in my book, I tried very hard to present all the nuance, all the careful debate. The Electoral College is just stupid. There's no reason for it. Uh, it doesn't help any of the people that even its defenders thinks it helps. It doesn't help small population states. It doesn't help rural states. It doesn't help the Republican Party over the long term. We can go into all that stuff. But the short version is it doesn't give us any benefits. Just every now and then, the Electoral College overrules the people and creates this giant mess. And you know that didn't happen for the entire 20th century, but that was mostly luck. And now it's happened twice in just the last five elections. So, of course, there is a a lot of debate about this and there's a, a movement after every election over the last couple of election cycles not the Obama election but after Al Gore lost to Bush and then obviously after Hillary lost to Trump this comes back up again about 
the Electoral College. And I found it interesting because I, I see the merits of the arguments on both sides. I mean, obviously, I come from a different political point of view as a conservative, and I don't think we should get rid of the Electoral College um, for a number of, of reasons. But I don't want this to be a whole debate about that. I want people to read your book because you prevent a I mean, you present a, a very compelling argument um, from your side of it. But there are even people like uh, Bill Daly, who was Al Gore's chairman, campaign chairman, even people like him are saying, you know, yes, it's a flawed system, but we shouldn't scrap it entirely because it could bring up a whole new set of problems. Um, do we want a coalition type government like they have in Europe? What happens if you have multiple parties running in, in, in the national election and someone gets a plurality of the vote at 30 percent and they're a billionaire like a Michael Bloomberg or Ross Perot um, and only get 30 percent of the vote. What happens that there? Because we have a two party system in Congress. I mean, there's I think there's a, there's valid arguments on both sides of that um, as far as the Electoral College is concerned. But what do you say to the to those to the, some of those arguments on the other side of it? I'll be totally honest, and it's strange that we're starting on this point because there are valid arguments to a lot of counter arguments to a lot of what I talk about in the book. I do not think there are valid arguments. There are arguments, but I think none of them stands up for why we should have an electoral college. So first of all, if you're concerned about third party and you know what happens when somebody gets 37% of the vote and someone else gets 36 or something like that, we've had that situation before. I mean, that's how Abraham Lincoln got elected. There was third party candidate. Uh, Bill Clinton ran against Perot. He didn't get a majority of the vote. What you want in that kind of situation would be something called ranked choice voting, which I also talk about in the book, which would then make sure that if you're part of a minority coalition, you then get your vote to count for one of the top two choices. So I could absolutely say people, you know, see people saying, let's get rid of the Electoral College and replace it with ranked choice voting. I would love to see ranked choice voting everywhere, but that's not actually an argument for the Electoral College. That's an argument for ranked choice voting. <laughs> We're getting a little into the weeds, right. but but the big picture is every argument in favor of the Electoral College, it does not do the things that people think the Electoral College does. It is entire it's like an argument for Russian roulette, right? Like it the the way the Electoral College works is most of the time nothing happens. And then every so often there's this big gross mess that someone else has to clean up. And it, it there's no benefit. And so uh, you know, it's it's really strange to be starting with the one issue where I'm just like, nope, no good arguments here. Let's have a nuanced discussion, but not about this. But but here we are. And I totally I totally feel this way. It's the shortest chapter in the book for a reason. Right, right. Well, shout out to my friend, governor, former governor of Alaska, Bill Walker, who was also a cohort in my Harvard Institute of Politics fellowship. We served together in our in our brief time at Harvard this this year. He is a big proponent of ranked choice voting, not necessarily on a national level, but on a um, state and local level and for congressional races and things like that. So he'd be very happy to to um, hear that you're you're in favor of ranked choice voting because he just thinks that um, that that is a better way to run our uh, election systems because of a number of reasons, um, which we're going to talk about, too, because in your book, you also talk about ballot access, voting and the behavior and the way that our system, the processes in our system uh, need some reform. Um, you tell a really funny story about um, about Schoolhouse Rock. 
And I related to this story in your book because uh, I am of the Gen X generation. I'm 44. I grew up on the Schoolhouse Rock cartoons. And you talk about how you referenced that to a 19 year old intern on Capitol Hill. Uh, And he had no idea what you were talking about. And I understood that because after spending some time at Harvard with my students, I would make cultural references and they would look at me like I was crazy. And then I would have to face the reality that I'm just that old and I'm not prepared to do that. Um, but you use the example of of the schoolhouse rock, how a bill becomes a law um, as as one of the areas where we could see some reform before we get into the voting part of it and how how difficult it is for bills to actually become law. Talk about what what made you decide to write about the Schoolhouse Rock example and what some of your solutions are for it. When I was a kid, I loved that cartoon. I remember this, you know, my grandparents, not the not the Jersey ones, by the way, the Florida ones. I had like the Jewish grandparents, you know, legally mandated in all places. Uh, (laughs) And and I, I would like watch the VHS and I'd rewind it and watch it again. And and the idea that I could grasp even as a kid was not so much the details of, you know, committees and the legislative process. It was this basic idea that in America, if we the people want our country to move in a certain direction, ultimately most of the time we can get what we want. That's democracy. And it doesn't mean it happens quickly. It doesn't mean it happens every single occasion, but it means it happens. And when you look at the experience that we're living through right now, and this was true when I worked in the Obama White House, and it's much more true today, Americans keep asking for one set of things from their government on gun violence prevention, on climate change, on taxes, you name it. It's happening now on COVID as well and how we respond to COVID. And our government keeps doing the opposite of what the people want. And in many cases, there's no electoral penalty for that. So that's the whole heart of the book. It's like, why is that? What happened to the Schoolhouse Rock theory of government? Because it's clearly not working that way anymore. And one of the things I discovered is that there are hurdles to a bill becoming law that just did not exist in 1973 when Schoolhouse Rock came out. And I first, you know, that when the song that I was singing along to as a kid was written. And so Bill or Bell, because I feel like it's 2020, you know, our Schoolhouse Rock should have a right. female reboot, <laughs> a female led reboot. Uh, Bell faces obstacles that Bill did not. And that helps explain why the number of bills that get through Congress is so much smaller than it used to be. It's not just that bills have always had trouble. It's that things are much worse now. Along nearly every dimension, our democracy is functioning less well than it did when I was a kid, which is not that long ago. Right. Um, you know, you you talk about in your book, you say that turning the people's will into reality was our birthright as Americans. And it, it seems as though that 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 our leaders are not necessarily representing the will of the people through legislation like they like our founders intended them to. And I guess it goes back to the old argument of delegate versus trustee uh, of the people. Um, uh, but do you think that there's a a part of the problem with this is because our country is is so civically ignorant at this point. I mean, I'm shocked and horrified at how many people just don't understand basic civics, how how laws, how bills become law, the separation of powers, the basic three branches of government. Like, is that how a demagogue like Donald Trump is able to get elected because he can say and do all these crazy things that go against what our system was designed to do? Because people are just civically ignorant. 
I think civic education is really important. And as an American, you need to know how your system works. And and by the way, if you're interested in learning more about how your system works, I have a book for you. Exactly. How, however, I also think that what we're looking at, I think that we so often in politics right now, we see these issues framed as populism versus elitism, the people versus the experts. But actually, that's not true. I mean, I'm going to use background checks for firearm sales just as the most basic one because so a huge majority of Americans, and it's 80% plus, so not just Democrats and independents, but Republicans too, support background checks for firearm sales, and so do the experts. And you see this happening in a more life or death way right now with COVID. On nearly every issue, Americans would like our government to trust the experts, trust the science, do the thing that makes the most sense with COVID, and our government's doing the opposite. And the reason for that is not that people are ignorant because people are agreeing with the leading epidemiologists in the world. The reason the government is not doing what we want is because our system of government has been redesigned to give a handful of people, basically corporations and the very, very wealthy people who run them, a lot more political power than they've ever had and to give the rest of us a lot less political power. Ultimately, this all comes down to the basic questions in a democracy or a republic, which is who has power and how can they use it? And if you're listening to this, odds are you have a lot less power than you used to. You mention in in your book, you talk about in a, in a really great chapter called Take a Shit with Irv Litt. Um, <laughs> and of, I'm sure in, in many of your interviews, that's probably a chapter that people point to all the time. A, it's just a it's a great chapter title that makes you go, what? <laughs> and also but what you talk about in there, um, you talk about the idea of one person, one vote and what happens when that isn't actually applied, even though that's what we're taught and that's how the system is supposed to be designed but it um it, it's gone awry um talk about what what is take a shit with Irvlet first of all explain that <laughs> so, <laughs> it's a great so t- the short story and i we don't have time unfortunately for the whole thing but right. i guess that that's what the book is that's for that's right that's right uh, the the short story is that my grandfather ran for president of his high school in Brooklyn, although he talked about it as though he had run for president of the United States. <laughs> and Take a Shit with Irv Litt was the negative ad run against him. Um, you know, this was in the 1940s, and uh, I guess this was the the pinnacle of negative advertising at the time. But he ended up winning his race, to, to his credit. I want to make that very clear to, to everyone listening. The reason I talked about that is that when I describe a student body election from the 1940s, you all already know that one person, one vote applies. It's not like if you went to one classroom, you get three votes. And if you are part of a different classroom, you get half of a vote. But when it comes to our most important elections in America for Congress, for Senate and for the White House, who you are determines how powerful your vote is. So we say we have one person, one vote. But the way I put it in the book is that's like saying me and Dwayne The Rock Johnson have one person, one body. That is technically true, but we have very different bodies. Right. We're One of us is way stronger than the other. <laughs> and right now there's a, a few people who are the Dwayne The Rock Johnsons of the voting world. And then there's a lot of people who are me. And one of the things that I think is really important to know if you want to understand American politics today is we say that we have one person, one vote in America, but in most cases, we really don't. And that it, once you know that, so much of the rest of what's happening in our country makes sense. 
So give an example, a practical example for people who are listening to this and they go, well, what do you mean? How, how is it possible? I go in, I cast a ballot just like the next person in my election. It gets counted and we get our senators, our congressmen, our judges or whomever. Um, how come? Why? How? Give an example of where one person, one vote doesn't actually work. The best example is Wyoming compared to California. So what one person, one vote literally means as a Supreme Court doctrine is that if you go into the voting booth, you your vote matters. It has the same strength as someone else, one of your neighbors. And that's a constitutional requirement within states. It's why we don't have state senates, for example, that look like the American Senate where different districts have different populations. If you look at the American Senate, because this was specifically carved into the Constitution, different states have different populations. They all have two senators. So if you're from Wyoming, your vote counts 68 times more when it comes to how many senators you elect than someone from California. Wyoming, if you were a a two, I don't mean to rag on Wyoming. I do this a lot in interviews. And at some point, I'm going to meet someone from Wyoming, although it's not likely because there's almost no one from Wyoming. That's (laughs) my point. Have you ever been there? Uh, yeah, I've, I've loved it. The people place, were yeah. it was beautiful. The people were lovely. I'm sure they're, you know, really annoyed at me now. But um, <laughs> but the, the thing about and I by the way, I think what people in Wyoming should have democratic rights. It's just that they're not 68 times more important than someone who happens to live in California. And so what happens is when you look at that divide and then you look at something else, which is very important to recognize, which is the urban rural divide in American politics today, because small population states tend to be more rural. And especially right now, more urban states, more states with more city dwellers tend to be bluer. And so when you look at that, you discover this other important thing, if you know this about American politics, again, it all starts to make sense. States are more conservative than people. So Trump won 30 states. There's 30 red states as of 2016, even though he lost the popular vote. He won 60 percent of the states. And of course, senators represent states, not the population. In other words, in theory, the Republican Party could get to 60 Senate votes only by winning states that Trump won, even though Trump lost the popular vote. And then you look at why the Senate is more conservative than the country as a whole. Well, suddenly it all makes sense. Well, wouldn't the counter argument to that be that's why we have the House of Representatives, right? We have the People's House. In Wyoming, you only have uh, what one congressman. And in California, you have 55. Um, so wouldn't you wouldn't the counter argument be that the that that proportional representation is balanced out in the House side where Democrats took back took back the House? They have the majority of their delegation in California is Democrat um, versus, uh, you know, the Senate, which has even, you know, even an amounts for each person. But the idea was to create balance so there'd be compromise so that what there wouldn't be such domination of one region or one party. Wouldn't that be the counter argument? It would be, but there's a couple of things in that counter argument that wouldn't be accurate. So one of them is, uh, I want to get to the heart of it because you said the idea was that it was this balance. And that's actually not true. What happened was at the constitutional convention, the small states teamed up and they said, if you don't give us this, we won't ratify the constitution. So there wasn't a compromise in the sense of, yeah, this seems like a good idea. It was a compromise in the sense of, this is the price we have to pay to have a country. The alternative is to have 
the Articles of Confederation, which weren't working at all and were less representative. And so literally uh, a delegate from Delaware got up and said, if you don't give us equal representation in the Senate, we will team up with foreign powers and who knows what might happen, right? It was essentially a, a threat to bring European influence back to the continent. And so you had our most notable founders. You had Hamilton, Madison, you know, basically like the whole cast of Hamilton here right. was looking at this and saying, this is a terrible idea. The Senate should not be structured this way. Hamilton very eloquently said, states are man-made. I'm paraphrasing, he said it better. But he said states are man-made constructs. Which is more important, the rights of the states, which are created by people, or the rights of the people living within those states? And he said it would be the the height of foolishness to sacrifice the latter for the former. And yet that's what we had to do in order to have a country, in order to have a Senate. So this was not about balance. It was about essentially having no choice. It was about a hostage situation. (laughs) Or people could argue that it was about balance in order for the smaller states to get representation that they felt was sufficient against the bigger states. Maybe different the, co- compromise and different, not like bills compromise like that, but it was a compromise to say, hey, you know, we don't want to get overrun by our, our big brothers over here with more people. Yes, absolutely. That's what the smaller states would have argued, but no one outside the small states found that convincing at the time. I think that's an important thing to note. This is not a, so when we think about what are our principles as a country, this was never a, a founding principle of America. It was a sort of reluctant agreement and, and including by the way, uh, James Wilson, another founder, another framer of the constitution said, we're doing this and it will eventually destroy America. Even though he, you know, he was on board with the constitution, but he said this compromise, this deal to create the Senate in this way is going to undo America. And unfortunately, I think he may be closer to being right than at any point in history because of the way things have balanced out. You mentioned something else which is really important, which is that we have regional balance. And one of the reasons our framers were willing to accept this deal, even though they didn't like it, was that North and South, which were the main divides in our country at the time, small and large population states were roughly evenly distributed. So there wasn't going it wasn't going to have a big impact on the biggest political debate of the moment it was basically a neutral decision at the time today it's not neutral because rural and urban divides map clearly onto republican and democrat and the partisan divide has replaced the regional divide as the most important fault line in american politics and so we've never seen the basic unfairness of the senate mapped so clearly onto the clearest dividing line in American politics. We've never lived through that experiment as a country, and there's a lot of really good reasons to think we are not going to survive as a country if we continue in that way. The good news, by the way, is we can do what America has always done, which is add new states to balance it out. You talked about balance. I live in D.C. We don't have senators. We absolutely should, and that would help. It wouldn't restore the balance, but it would help restore the balance. So there are things we can do. Um, and, and you don't have to redo the whole thing, because, which is particularly important in the case of the Senate, because that's not even open to amendment. It's the only part of the Constitution where if you wanted to change the every state gets the same number of senators rule, you would have to tear up the Constitution and start over, which, of course, I don't believe we should do. Right. And that's uh, part of what the Bedford decree is actually about. And you talk about that. Um, and you also you have a, you know, a bit of a bee in your bonnet about the about the Senate and particularly about Mitch McConnell, which I, I get it, even though. Uh, you know, I worked for many Republicans and worked to elect Republicans and was happy when we had control. 
that is not the case anymore. <laughs> Excuse me. That is not the case anymore. <laughs> Thanks to Donald Trump, but I get your, um, you know, your your, <laughs> what's the word I want to use, um, disdain for Mitch McConnell. And you tell a, a funny story about Mitch McConnell's old frat house in Louisville. Can you can you just talk about why you went to Mitch McConnell's old frat house in Louisville and what it is about Mitch McConnell that just has you completely over him? Well, first of all, let me say I've never been described as having a bee in my bonnet before, and I love it. This is I, I'm I'm getting new business cards made the moment we're done with this interview. <laughs> That's awesome. Uh, the the thing that I will say about Mitch McConnell it, to me is he understood well before most Americans, and I will as I say this as a Democrat, he he caught us napping. He understood that one of the things about politics is that the players write the rules. And that's different than other competitions. And so while most of us have been focused on what's going on on the field, Mitch McConnell has spent his Senate career almost uniquely dedicated to rewriting the rule book. And it's worked really well. I mean, you were talking about how as a Republican, you were happy when Republicans were in charge. I, Of course. And I think that makes a great deal of sense. What you want is a system where when the people want Republicans to be in charge, Republicans are in charge. And when the people want Democrats to be in charge, Democrats are in charge. And then you get parties that will try to appeal to the people as opposed to, for example, keeping them from voting or relying on these unfair structural advantages involving campaign finance or, or what we just talked about with the Senate in order to keep power despite not doing what the people want. And so uh, all of this, you add it all up, and I decided I need to go to Louisville and crash a party at Mitch McConnell's former frat house, obviously. <laughs> and so, uh, you know, partly, by the way, because I wanted to make sure this this is a book about democracy and political science and all that for people like me, because there's a limit to how long a book I can get through. Uh, there's a limit to how many charts and stuff I can read. So I wanted the kind of book that I could get through. And so part of that was like, you know what I would read about? You know what I want to do? Crash this frat party. Unfortunately. Yeah. Uh, I am in my 30s, and I learned that crashing a frat party when you're in your 30s is not just harder, but like way creepier feeling <laughs> than uh, it might have been, you know, just a few years prior. So I didn't end up making it into the frat house. The crazy thing I learned, though, is that on the University of Louisville campus, there is this very widespread rumor that Mitch McConnell owns the land underneath his old frat house because they have the best spot on a frat row. And I don't actually think that that's true. I don't think Mitch McConnell owns the deed to the land. But what is really interesting to me is everybody on campus seems to think that it's true. And so they just take it for granted that if you're part of Team Mitch, if you're you know affiliated with Mitch McConnell, if you're one of his friends, you play by one set of rules. And then the rest of us, which is the majority of us, have to play by another set of rules. Mm -hmm. And so in this weird way, I didn't make it into the into the frat. Sadly, I'll have to live with that regret. <laughs> but but I did find this very alarming metaphor for what is happening in American life. And it's it's even happening right on one campus. As much as I would love to see old photos or video of Mitch McConnell in his frat house days, uh, it's hard to imagine that guy now uh, back then because he is the absolute worst. And that comes from a Republican who is prepared for the Republicans to lose the Senate because of how disgracefully Mitch McConnell has run the Senate, what he's allowed 
allowed, the lawlessness he's allowed with Donald Trump and the things that he's done that never would have been allowed under Barack Obama or Hillary Clinton. And that level of hypocrisy and just craven political expediency deserves to be defeated. So that's my spiel on Mitch McConnell. We we are we you know I share your contempt for him um, for different reasons, but it's uh, I just. Yeah, he needs to be out. Um, you also tell a really great story um, that I want to make sure we talked about before we, we wrap up. You and I share not only a uh, fondness for New Jersey, but also I know that you're a cat lover. Yes. Uh, I mean, absolutely. I'm a crazy cat gentleman yes. is the, uh, the, you know, the, if you're looking for a hashtag. Yes. As uh, as 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 my husband and myself, our cat Tiki is uh, rules the roost in our house. Um, but you also have a love for Disney World that I share. And you make a couple references to Disney World. You went there on Inauguration Day to get away from the Trump inauguration. And I don't blame you. It is the happiest place on Earth. Where better to go than Disney World to get away from the nightmare that was happening in Washington. But you also go back to because you're you were talking about in, in your in your uh, chapter how to plan a fire festival you were talking about the the structural problems with uh, voting and uh, things that deter people and during your you tell a funny story about standing online for the flight of passage ride which my husband and I did last year so I totally related to this story but you used it as a metaphor for voting um, Talk about that. The Florida elections uh, historically, but particularly in 2012, which was the year that I focused on, um, the long lines that we've seen have were awful. I mean, we've seen this a lot in the primaries this year, and I'm so glad that Americans are finally paying attention to it. But this is not a new development. In Florida, people were waiting for were waiting seven, eight, nine hours. And so I went to Disney World because a lot of people were saying this is like waiting in line at Disney World. So I figured, okay, how can I wait on a long, long line? I will go to Disney. And what I discovered it was two things. Number one, I waited for four hours for the flight of passage ride. And I'm not actually like always a huge Disney person. I would not wait that long for most rides. It was awesome. I don't, I don't know if you and your husband agreed, but like th- this ride was incredible. I was, I left and I was like, oh my God, Disney magic. Like I was a believer. Um, so that was one thing I learned. But the other thing that I learned that I think is much more important here is that there is no way to wait on a line as miserable as the long lines we have to vote. And when you look at long voting lines in America, it's not just that the lines are incredibly long for many people. It's that it's the disproportionate impact. So for example, in 2012, if you were a non-white voter to vote, were six times higher than they were for white voters. And we also know that if there's a long line, you're likely to leave the line. And more than that, there's a possibility you won't even vote in the next election because you don't want to put yourself through that again. So long lines are not just an inconvenience. They're a threat to our democracy. Yes. And we did appreciate that that uh that ride it was unbelievable we didn't stand in it for four hours the way you did i think it was about two and a half for us but um it was worth the wait and um obviously now with covid and things i'm not encouraging people to go to disney right but when when things are normal again uh you should definitely experience that but if you are someone who gets motion sickness like i do be prepared either take some ginger or some motion sickness (laughs) pills because it is really an immersive ride um but i thought it was a clever a clever and very relatable way to talk about 
um, what what happens and and the the idea of uh, what was it called Q theory I think that you talk about um, without getting into you know too scientific about that but there are different factors that deter people from voting. Um, or standing online and what happens and that you saw the way that Disney managed the the line. You know, there's always something to do. Even though you were standing online, you also t- you also I have to read this quick passage from the book because I I just think that it's 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 indicative of the your writing style and also kind of the flow of the book. You said, how did voting become so miserable for so many people? How does that affect our elections? And how can we make sure everyone can exercise their fundamental rights, not just in theory, but in real life? That's what I wanted to know. So obviously I went to Disney World. If there's a circle of hell below being stuck behind a touring Princeton acapella group as it goes through the entire Frozen soundtrack, I am not aware of it. But that's okay. Two years after spending... At two years after spending President Trump's inauguration at the Animal Kingdom, I have returned in order to suffer. <laughs> was that true? Were they really, was there really a Prince and Acapella group singing Frozen? Oh, yeah, it was miserable. <laughs> uh, and, and again, not even close to as miserable as voting. I mean, that would be, to me, the ultimate voter suppression would be you station an acapella group <laughs> at st- targeted precincts. And I think that could really disrupt the election. But, um, but yeah, the, the, There's just no way to approximate the misery that some Americans – and I should be clear, not most Americans, but about 12 percent of Americans have to go through in order to vote. So what do you think some of the solutions are? Because we've, you know, we've talked a little bit about the problems and and there, you know, there are a lot of them, but I want people to have some sense of of hope that, you know, everyone doesn't end up an alcoholic or like popping pills by the end of this election cycle because they're just so depressed about democracy. I think that Donald Trump is Donald Trump is an existential threat to our democracy, to our republic, uh, which is why I'm so motivated to make sure he doesn't win. Um, but there are other problems that have been exposed over the last couple of years that I think vote and voting voter suppression and, and voter access is one of them that I think I underestimated. Um, what are give, give people some hope, David, please. Absolutely. I, I think that we can undo the structural damage that Mitch McConnell has done to our democracy. I think we can undo 80% of that within six months. That would be my estimation. And, and I'm starting from July, it's not July, rather, from January 2021. Uh, the reason for that is what I call the Skywalker window. So the way that change happens in our current redesigned system of government is a lot like the end of episode four of Star Wars, right? You have Luke Skywalker and he's headed to the Death Star and there's this impenetrable fortress, but there's a little opening and it's only open for a second. But if you make your shot, Everything changes and it changes really quickly. So let me describe what we could do if people who care about democracy – and I'm not just including Democrats in this category. People who care about democracy have the ability to pass laws and get them signed next year. You could make voter registration automatic nationwide, which would take a lot of the incentive to try to suppress votes out of the system. You could set up – we're talking about long lines. You could set up federal standards for the number of voters per polling place. So you'd have a a maximum number of of that. You'd set a federal standards for poll workers and poll worker training. Just those things would bring down voting lines substantially. You could also undo what's called a voter purge, these purges that are kicking millions of eligible registered voters off of voting rolls. Again, one federal law could do that. While you're at it, 
you could expand our public campaign finance system in order to undo some of the harmful effects of Citizens United. You could add D.C. and Puerto Rico as states, which would help balance out some of that imbalance of power we talked about in the Senate and make the Senate more reflective of the people's will. Um, I believe you should expand the Supreme Court because I don't think that the way that uh, the courts have been packed is conducive to a, a tradition of judicial independence, and you could do that with a single federal law. You could do all of that in theory with one federal law. Combine it. And the the point here is not that necessarily if you're listening to this, you agree with all of the things I just stated, although oh, hope, I'm hopefully sure there aren't. I know there are conservatives <laughs> out here hyperventilating yeah. at the prospect of some of these changes because they're pretty dramatic. But go ahead. <laughs> I, I would say they're, they're dramatic, but I do think and I hope that if uh, you know, if, if I didn't write the book just for my fellow Democrats, I think if if you read this book and you're a small C conservative, I hope that you are convinced that some of these changes are not radical. They're very reasonable. Yeah. And. Um, but but that said, even if you're unconvinced by that, my my broader point here is that the political process we have, it's broken, but it is still capable of fixing itself. Right? We can fix our government using our government. We can fix our politics using our politics. And ultimately, to me, that is the last best hope of any democracy. Once you can't do that anymore, once you say no matter how hard we fight for change, change is impossible, then you've slipped over the edge and it's very hard to restore something. But we haven't reached that point yet. And if we work together and we stay focused on the right things, I think we can pull ourselves back from the brink. And you know, I, I got into politics because of something President Obama said in one of his speeches in 2008. He said, faced with impossible odds, people who love this country can change it. Mm -hmm. And I think even after nearly four years of Trump, that is still true. And this is a book about how to make sure that stays true not just for the next four years or the next eight years, but for generations to come. Well said, my friend. That's from David Litt. He wrote the book, Democracy in One Book or Less, How It Works, Why It Doesn't, Why Fixing It is Easier Than You Think. Out now, go read it. It's a really excellent read. Um, before I let you go, one quick tidbit. You had written um, for the White House Correspondents' Dinner. And you were only 24 years old when you became a speechwriter for President Obama, which is uh, pretty amazing. And I can only imagine the ride. And you've written, you wrote another book about, about your time there called um, Thanks Obama, which was the New York Times bestseller. Hopefully this one will be too. But do you have uh, a quick anecdote, uh, something that people could uh, would laugh about or an insider uh, joke about the White House Correspondents' Dinner and your experience writing those monologues? Um, well, this one I have I've told this story before, but I just always love going back to this moment because I was uh, able to be part of the group that brought in Keegan Michael Key, who played Obama's yes. anger translator in 2015. <laughs> and you know, in my first book, I didn't realize it at the time, but so much of what I wrote about was President Obama laughing, which is weird because Donald Trump almost never laughs. Right. You never see him laugh. Right. And so I got to watch it. We were in the map room. In the White House, and I got to watch as Keegan, Obama's anger translator, practiced this skit with the president. And uh, watching the president of the United States just completely fail to hold it together. I mean, anytime Keegan said anything, he would just lose it. And uh, you know, and I feel like it's those. I, I was lucky to get to work on jokes because I got to see a side of a president, you know, where where the stakes were a lot lower than. 99.9% of the rest of what he was doing. Right. And so, so to be able to kind of see him as a person like that, um, you know, I think that's true really no matter who you support politically, no matter, 
um, which president your you know your favorite is to get to see the the leader of the free world, but also a human being, because I think that's also at the heart of our democracy is that you know these are people, and it and it's important to be able to recognize that even as we try to make sure that the best possible people lead us. Uh, for the the Washington Insiders, the Washington the White House Correspondents Dinner is uh, a gathering yearly of of major folks in the press, and they bring in celebrities and people as guests. And the president basically makes fun of himself and the Washington um, political scene. And usually a comedian headlines it, so it's it's a night to be fun. Um, it's kind of lost its luster a little bit over the years because of Donald Trump, like you said, has no sense of humor. Um, and uh, people still say, and I'm one of those that believes that when Donald Trump made the decision he was going to run for president, it was because President Obama skewered him at the 2011 White House Correspondents' Dinner where Trump was in attendance, and it was all the birth certificate nonsense, and Donald Trump was not happy. And you could see his face. He has he is not self-deprecating. He takes he takes himself way too seriously. He dishes it, but he can't take it. And it was at that moment that I believe that he made the decision that he was going to run for president just to get back at Barack Obama. Um, and God help us, here we are now. But the <laughs> uh, the, the Key, Key and Peele, the show, it's not on anymore. Hilarious. Uh, Keegan Michael Key is absolutely hysterical. And for those who have not seen the Angry Translator skit. Please YouTube it. It is hysterical. And it also created one of the greatest gifs ever of drop the mic. (laughs) (laughs) David Litt, thank you so much for joining me. Best best of luck with the book, Democracy in One Book or Less. And uh, I hope to have you back after the election and we can talk about um, whether it went the way you thought. That sounds great. And thank you so much for having me. Thank you. Again, a big thank you to David Litt. Um, it's really a fun read. So like I said, I don't agree with everything. He's right. Uh, he's left of center. I'm right of center. But it was a fun read, especially for people who are into politics. Um, so yeah, check out his book, Democracy in One Book or Less. And that's it for this week's edition of Honestly Speaking with Tara. Um, stay tuned. I have a couple of good guests coming up in the next week's. Uh, next week, Julian Zelizer will be joining me. He also wrote a book about Newt Gingrich and how he set the tone and stage for the rise of Donald Trump. So um, that's a good conversation, especially if you wonder how the hell did the Republican Party become like this? Yeah, Newt Gingrich and those guys had a lot to do with it. They laid the foundation. So stay tuned next week for Julian Zelizer. Be sure to follow me at Tara Setmayer. Be sure to subscribe to the podcast and the Twitter feed at honestly underscore Tara. And also be sure to follow the Lincoln Project because we are kicking ass and taking names and having fun while we do it. See you next week.